Hey, what's going on? Thanks for checking out PVE Podcast. I'm Troy Tittlemeyer, one of the co-hosts for this show. Uh, t- this show right now with Rudolf Uber is just absolutely amazing. His perspective and experience coming from Europe and, uh, and, and just years of being Mr. LNG and watching this transition and this whole climate change and policies and all this stuff that's happening, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and so one thing that leads to the final message that we want to present and, and let everybody know is we talk about a process called serpentinization in this show. It is a worldwide process and it's so important to understanding how we as geoscientists understand the problems that we're trying to address, creating solutions. Serpentinization has so much to say. It's also something that's not even in the climate models. So serpentinization is something that we all must understand. And that's why PBE podcast is going to be in one location for the next several weeks. And that's the Magma Kim Research Institute's webinar series on the UDH system, the ultra deep hydrothermalism system that we have on this planet. It's on Mars. It's universal. It's a universal concept. It's global in scale. We hope to see you there. MagmaChemRI.org is where this is happening and where it's being taught. Every Thursday for a couple of hours, we're getting together and we're going through the whole model, the latest and greatest earth model from MagmaChem all the details, addressing any questions. That's where the magic happens. Please leave some likes, shares, reviews. This community that's being built, I believe, is the most powerful, the smartest, the fastest moving community to make a difference. Please leave feedback for us to get better. We continue to put a lot of effort into this and we won't stop. Enjoy the show. (laughs) Three, Three, two, two, one. one. Let's go! That one was pretty good, except for Rudolph, you didn't get into it, and I'm a little upset. I thought you were coming (laughs) in, but that was pretty, that was in sync, Skippo. That was good. That was good. I'm I'm proud of us. I'm proud of us. But uh, even more so, we got a, dude, we got a great show today. Yeah. We got a great show today. As far as understanding the downstream of oil and gas and having a perspective of, you know, what CO2 is really doing to the atmosphere. I, th- I think we we kind of opened up a, a a little box of worms, so to speak, and I think we got into some very very thought provoking and and some very very good ideas. Definitely, definitely, the platform of PBE Podcast allows us just a, a place to come together and and speak and try to make sense of the experiences and what we understanding from what we're studying today and what we know of the past mistakes we've made. All that stuff is happening live in these shows and when you cross paths with someone like rudolph which it was just through linkedin like it's a kind of a popular thing now is we're meeting people digitally and but but when you're putting out you know real content that's driving some amazing conversations like rudolph's linkedin profile does that's that's what just caught me and and the thing that caught me the most was just kind of hey i feel like we need to reevaluate our whole stance on what is driving this clean energy emissions argument how this this major shift to solar wind and all these what we call renewable energies is just being driven so hard so fast right after such a what seemed like a stable time to rudolph which was the lng 
and all that stuff. I mean, it came full circle for me that without question right now, I believe wholeheartedly that the internet and these things like the podcast are allowing us to unite and actually create value for someone who's listening that's in that position to make the right decision. They, they get access to this and it's real. Without a doubt. And I, I think... Well, key take. Well, first and foremost, Rudolph, thank you for for being here. I know, I know it's it's been a it's been a it's been a rough one for you for so far. I mean, with the AC off, but we really appreciate the sacrifice for us. Uh, thank you but, for having me. No, that was a but, pleasure, really. Yeah, but I mean, some of the really big key takeaways from this show for for me is the understanding of first and foremost, the mindsets of, you know, of Europe and North America and, and really getting that perspective from you and, and how in North America, there's this concept, the concept of failure is not a bad thing. It's just something, you know, a little chip on your shoulder to move forward opposed to, you know, in, in Europe where you were saying, you know, you, you fail once and that sticks with you the rest of your life. And, and I, that's a concept to me that just is foreign. And, uh, like no pun intended, but, right. and as, as well as, yeah, as well as, you know, your, uh, experience with LNGs and it's just, oh my gosh. I mean, you, going into the details is just going to be phenomenal for anyone, you know, can, listening to the show is you're going to, you're going to learn a ton because I did. Thank you. <laughs> well, what, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm what about for you, Rudolph? <laughs> bless you. What about for you, <laughs> Rudolph? What, uh, what, what dropped out from the show and, uh, what did you enjoy the most about, uh, about our time spent together? Well, actually it is a, it's a very uh, nice and loose concept. It's not so, uh, uh stitched up with, uh, like, uh, a couple of shows I've been on here in Europe, uh, where, uh, people actually are way more formalized. Uh, but what's really interesting to me is that uh, actually with this whole process of uh, serpentinization and uh, uh, that uh, there is really something in Earth that holds more or less the key for our energy future. Uh, we don't have to go and, and, and look uh, for, for crazy things that are not even ironed out yet. Uh, that is the most interesting one because I'm, I'm learning here. It's, it's, I'm, I'm an energy professional. I'm not coming from geology, so I'm looking at many things and uh, I still need to uh, drill into them to have half an understanding or even 10% of an understanding about them. But you, you guys more or less confirmed the ideas that I'm already carrying around with me for the last, uh, let's say, one and a half or two years. And, and uh, that actually pushes me a lot further because now I'm got, I'm, I've gotten curious in uh, how this whole thing plays together and how uh, we can actually develop uh, a narrative uh, for, uh, let's say, the entire world, showing the world that, uh, look, guys, uh, we don't say no to this, no to that. No, we have an alternative solution that works. It's economical, it works, and it is truly clean. Right. Clean, clean enough for anything. Yeah? Right. And it, it is, we're using the processes of the earth in order to live on the earth, we're going with nature as opposed to against it. Mm -hmm. that, and that, I think that's a narrative that's very important to uh, push. It will take time. People won't like it at the beginning, but you know, we have a saying, a steady drop 
actually breaks every stone so it's uh wow no you're yeah i think the the merger the timing of this show man it was absolutely fascinating to get on the same page i think intellectually philosophically and just talk about what is going on and and we are not saying that nothing makes sense gas hydrates and hydrocarbon is the most stable thing that that business is already on the road what i will say after this show and i do believe this enough to debate it with anybody but i feel like bad business has driven bad decisions and we're at a time right now where bad decisions are being exposed and it's not it's not good. We have these conversations that's saying, wait a minute, your whole philosophy of why you're investing so much time and attention into solar energy or wind and all these renewables is because the CO2 emissions are bad for the planet. That that conversation isn't even debated anymore. We we just know that there's something ma there's something major going on there that doesn't make sense, and that is uncomfortable to me as a professional. So what I'm saying is, pay attention to what you are putting your time and attention into, in hopes that you're going to have a career for 40 years and you're going to you're going to leave a financial legacy for your family to move and and put things forward. Pay attention to that, and 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 it, you're you are valuable and your ideas are valuable and we got to get back to understanding the basic fundamentals of this process we call it that that is on planet earth we got to get back to the fundamentals and that's it and and everything yeah. else will work itself out and we should be enthusiastic about what is here and what's to come absolutely completely agree with that nothing to add <laughs> Well, we are in the conception segment of the PBE podcast with Mr. Rudolph. Is it Uber? Oh my God, uh, Uber, Huber. Um, <laughs> we in German, you would say Huber, but that's Uber. Uh, virtually yeah. unspellable in English. So, <laughs> Rudolph Huber, thank you, sir, for joining us uh, in this discussion about you know what we'll eventually get to, which is climate focus uh, discussion and what's going on with renewable energies and your perspective and specifically your experiences. And that's what we do with the conception part of the show. Where did it all began for you, Rudolph? And and how did your 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 academia to young professionals and your experience? How does that story go, sir? Uh, that wasn't the design path. Yeah? It's it's. Uh, when I look back, I wanted to be something very, very different. I, I was a lawyer at the beginning. Uh, I went to law school, not specifically because I wanted to be a lawyer, but uh, because I had, a, let's say, an, an urge in me to bring justice to the world. You know, when you're young, uh, you want to do those kind of things. So you want to improve uh, the planet. Uh, when you grow older, uh, let's say, reason and, and um, uh, feasibility starts to flow in and you find out that uh, some of the things that you um, aimed at when you were younger actually are either plain stupid or uh, they are completely unfeasible or you would have to change them very much. I did never really think about energy. Uh, that was an accident when uh, I was a lawyer in Paris and uh, as an Austrian that wasn't really, uh, let's say, um, crowned by a lot of success, very simply because Parisian law firms are, they want an original French, except if you're working for the international department, then you pull somebody in from the outside. So 
I didn't see my future there. Uh, and uh, then I thought, uh, anyway, I, I had a plan to go to New York uh, to become a lawyer there. And I just, in the meantime, I went back to Austria to uh, uh, settle a couple of things and uh, do my uh, bar exam in Vienna, just in case I came back, uh, I could work as a lawyer here. And that's when I got a call from uh, the uh, largest oil and gas company of Central Europe, which is OMB. And a friend of mine, a workman there, he asked me if I wanted to help him with a couple of Middle Eastern contracts because, uh, and that's maybe another part of my past. I lived for four and a half years in Syria as a United Nations soldier. Whoa. And, Whoa. And, and, and uh, this was, was this before law school or? That was before law school. Yeah. Okay. I was, a, I was a late student. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And and, uh, and not only that, it's uh, I spent a lot of time in Arab countries and the Middle East altogether, and and uh, that that was in uh, a region of the world that and Africa were two regions of the world that I always loved very much. So uh, b before I went to law school, actually I had a project of uh, going to Cairo and to do uh, Islamic law at the Al Aqsa University wow. in Arabic, and my Arabic is wow. not really famous, yeah, and. <laughs> That, that fell apart because then I went to Paris uh, and, and then I did my thing in Paris and then I came back in Austria, but then I was a lawyer already. Uh, then I came into OMV and I started to help them with gas contracts, uh, especially in uh, Iran, but uh, also in Algeria. And mm -hmm. My French came in very handy for that. And, and I was actually a more or less run-of-the-mill gas man. Uh, it's I got my uh, gas... Um, Let's say I made I made my my gas formation years uh, inside OMB, and I didn't think very much of that. It's uh, there was no thinking about uh, the future of energy at the time when I did that. Gas was hip. It was green. It was the, the form of energy that was supposed to, to save the planet. You know, when you went to an, a green party meeting or to an environmental pressure group meeting. Uh, they were all pro gas. Wow. So, so we didn't have yeah. a we didn't have a problem. That was in two thousand five. You know, wow. When I started, so for six years, so everything was fine. What uh, What started to change uh, things a little bit was when uh, OMB started to think about LNG, and that was a new business for OMB. They didn't ever touch it before, and uh, you know, as long as this was more or less a, a, a fancy dream that uh, top management had, uh, they had a project team because the project team knew that uh, they want to be needing uh, developing a project or a deal. But uh, as soon as it became clear that OMV was serious about LNG and really wanted to do a deal on something, then suddenly everybody ran away and I was the only one left. Uh, so I, I was, uh, you know, a learned lawyer who worked in gas supply and uh, then suddenly I got interested in LNG. So I took over more or less <laughs> the real responsibilities without the formal ones wow. and uh, and they called me mr lng inside it would be very quickly. wow we're talking to wow. mr lng mr lng <laughs> well, it wasn't hard to be mr lng and it wasn't anybody else i'm gonna <laughs> officially change your name real quick give me a second we're doing another name change <laughs> yeah, and and so i was the go-to guy for everything concerning lng inside omv and, and I got hooked because uh, I thought that, look, this problem that you have with gas is it's bulky, it's hard to transport, it's hard to store. So you need very specific uh, uh, infrastructure in order to actually bring it to where you need it and to use it, to store it up because energy use 
is always seasonal. Yeah. There is uh, you, you you've got daily structures, you've got weekly structure, and you've got of course the seasonal structure as well. So so were it's, you guys so were you guys building uh, cryo units to? Uh, no, no, no. We weren't building anything. We're, what we did okay. is we, we booked capacity at the terminal, which was Gate Project in Netherlands. Okay. And uh, that was a pretty, uh, let's say, a hairy uh, negotiation, very simple, because uh, when Gate uh, was conceived, it was the first terminal of its kind on Earth. Because uh, LNG was a closed supply chain up until then. So that means uh, all the parties inside an LNG uh, chain they actually participated everywhere in confection, like, transport, in, in receiving and in the market. And uh, having a um, uh, third party um, receiving LNG receiving terminal where the capacity takers actually are not really shareholders, well, they had a minority share there, but nothing decisive, yeah? uh, and where the terminal itself had to work out a regime uh, ensuring that everybody is actually uh, treated the same. Yeah? Uh, that was a first on Earth. It was there were elements of that in the Cove Point uh, project, and and we looked at Cove Point quite a lot. But in in the end, we had to write the rules for LNG of uh, all the new. We had to invent actually the book for LNG, and, and that's what we did because we had no choice. Uh, so we wrote entirely new agreements, ripped the old ones up, and, and, and that was my claim to fame for LNG. In, 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 first place and when that was done actually i was the absolute go-to guy and i got promoted i was a manager suddenly and they asked me look we have this uh, regasification capacity now that's a lot of money uh that we have spent for that now uh we need lng so go find us some lng and that was exactly the time when lng was on Athenium. it was virtually nowhere to find we had the, one of the shortest markets that i can remember and uh, so I was uh, flying around the world and very quickly found out that we won't be able to buy LNG just off the market. Why? Because the Asians would always uh, outclass us when it comes to price. Uh. The only thing that we had is we had a stable outlet. We didn't need the kind of flexibilities that the Asians needed. Asians, mm. when they need a cargo, they need the cargo. There, there's, there's no way around that. Tokyo Bay, when they're missing one cargo, the flight's going out. Tokyo guys <laughs> will never allow that. So it's... Uh, yeah. Uh, in, in a sense, they are overpaying for the LNG. They were at least, yeah, just in order to be sure that uh, it was the LNG is coming. They have they have sustainable energy, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Europeans don't need that. We have deep underground storage. If cargo doesn't turn up, big deal. It doesn't really matter yeah. very much to us. Yeah. If we have one cargo too much, well, we push push Store. the storage. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't matter. Wow. Yeah? Japanese can't do that. Uh, Korea virtually can't do that. Uh, even China today is very limited. At the time, China didn't exist. Uh, yeah. It was there with a couple of very tiny terminals. Yeah, it was a, a micro player. And uh, so uh, I very quickly started to uh, go to Africa, especially Nigeria, Gabon, Angola, and uh, tried to incite uh, the uh, governments over there to uh, actually uh, develop a new pro project. And the deal was that I help you develop the project. I'm not going to ask anything for that because I'm doing it as part of my duties as a as head of LNG. And and uh, when you are at a certain point, a certain point, we have a preferential place at the table when it comes to taking the volumes. That was the deal. Mm. Then we had a change of CEO inside the OMB and everything changed. Oh shit! Uh, the, the new CEO didn't want LNG and everything was just oh, oh what the? And uh, I made it for another year. 
And one year after the new CEO came in, I called it quits. Wow. Uh, because it was at, at the time already, I was, uh, uh, I don't want to say in love with LNG, but I saw it as, 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 uh, as one of the greatest forms of energy for the future because it's so very, very clean. Right. Because you can do virtually anything with it. You can run a truck with it. You can run uh, heavy construction equipment with it, uh, rail. Uh, airplanes right. have been already yeah, flown buses. with LNG, yeah. buses, uh, ships, uh, uh, electricity, uh, heat production, anything. I mean, there isn't anything you do with, with fossil or with mm -hmm. renewable energy today that you couldn't do with LNG, mm -hmm. which makes it extremely versatile. Right. And it's extremely clean because the only thing that actually comes out at the back end if you uh, combust it properly is CO2. That's the only thing that's left. Anything else can right. uh, very reliably and very cheaply be filtered out because it's so little. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Real quick. So, and, and on top yeah, of well, Oh, I was going to say, and on top of that, when you're just talking about just the efficiency of LNGs as far as like kilowatts per pound, right? It's far greater than, in my opinion, any other form of, of energy. Mm. It's far um, greater than well, oil, coal, I, gas, or not gas, but like wood. I, wa I, want, to be, I want to be honest here. I mean, uh, it, it's uh, the fuels like diesel or even heavy fuel oil, yeah? They are incredibly efficient fuels. Mm -hmm. They're very, very good fuels. I'm not anti-diesel. Uh, mm -hmm. Absolutely not. I'm not anti-oil. I'm not even anti-coal. Properly done, those are very valid forms of energy because mm -hmm. they're stable, they're reliable, and, uh, uh, and they're economical. And uh, oh, if, yeah. you, if you filter coal up uh, the right way, it, it's, it's, it's clean energy. And the only thing that comes out more or less is CO2 at the back end. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So I'm not anti uh, anything. Uh, it, it's just that uh, uh, when you look at LNG, it's, uh, it, it's, you don't need a lot of technology in order to make it really, really clean. Mm -hmm. yeah? Because it is already so very clean from the get-go. <laughs> you don't need factories to clean up the exhaust gases. Yeah, Real that's quick. a very, very simple technology. Yeah. Real quick, I want to just explain and try to get on the same page as far as our understanding exactly of natural gas and LNG. LNG is liquefied natural gas. Yes. And are we talking about pure methane at the LNG level? So it's CH4. Yeah. That's all that's there. It's CH4 to uh, 97% usually. Wow. Okay. Most LNG producers refine it up to 97%. There are usually some, uh, let's say, some heavies in there like ethane, right, propane. Yeah. But uh, I, that's it. They're traces. Right. They're trace amounts. Uh, not really significant uh, uh, in, in a normal commercial setting. Wow. That's uh, amazing, man. I mean, that's about as yeah. efficient as us breathing. We breathe in oxygen. We release <laughs> CO2. LNG is burning CH4, and it's releasing a little CO2. I mean, that's CO2 and water, yeah. <laughs> and water, which is good for the system. All right. This is, this is good. This is very good. Your it's, experience it's, is very interesting. Your perspective on hydrocarbon at the fundamental level is what I yeah. am so intrigued with. I'm also, I, also, I also like the fact that you were there kind of at the start of this LNG revolution at the very beginning, like you said, in 2005, where yeah. you kind of spearheaded this, you know, the program. And then you also were there when, you know, they started to shift back into quote unquote renewables. So that I, that's a very, very fascinating perspective to have. 
it's I think what's even more interesting is because this comes later in the story, this whole renewable craze has been here already for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it has been here before I started to go into the energy world, actually. But it was, um, yeah, let's say um, a marketing gag on the side, nothing else. Uh, Heavy uh, renewable development has started just a couple of years ago. I mean, 10 years at best, not even. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the problem that I have with this thing is that if this would be an open market where okay, people choose whatever kind of energy they wanted, yeah, then I would have zero issue with this whole thing. But today, the whole discussion is so scored because uh, it's today you can't discuss with uh, renewable people anymore. The only thing they do is uh, they point at you, they point the finger in your face and say, you are a child murderer and you got shut up. Yeah, And that's the the end of discussion. There is no sensible discussion. Ten years ago, that was different. What happened? What happened? What happened? If I I knew that, um, it's psychology. Probably, mm. or it's it's people people, ma- people making decisions based on emotions, not based on the science. There we well, go. Well, ha- that that has always been that way. But uh, yeah. what I think, and this is my my own personal theory, is uh, look, I, I'm I'm a man of many trades, and uh, one of my hobbies uh, that I had already when I was a little boy was history. I was always a fan of the Roman Empire uh, and all ancient cultures up to the Middle Ages and everything. And one of the things that you learn when you're a hobby historian, as I am, is that everything goes in cycles. You know, mm. people uh, develop, uh, a new culture develops, a new uh, civilization develops. It uh, grows and grows and grows, reaches its peaks, its peak, and then it, it falls apart. And uh, it's uh, those things actually tend to uh, uh, get quicker with time. So it's. Today, uh, things happen in 100 years that needed 500 years under the Roman Empire. Uh, it's just that things have been speeding up enormously. What I think is that we have, um, uh, what we are experiencing now is uh, uh, with the end of the Cold War, the West lost its beacon. We lost our soul, more or less. Very simply, because uh, as long as the Soviet Union uh, breathed down our necks, we had something that we could concentrate on. Uh, we had something we could focus on. We could say, okay, look, uh, we don't want to be beaten by those guys. We want to be stronger. We want to be better. And that um, mm. actually, uh, anim- that actually uh, pushed us towards excellence through a horrible amount of mistakes, but that's how human history <laughs> usually goes. Yeah, <clears throat> motivated you know? by com- by competition. Motivated by like, yeah, mm-hmm. the right kind of competition. So the Soviets were actually a pretty good thing to happen to us. It was horrible for them because it totally messed up their side of the world. But I mean, that wasn't the fault of the West. Yeah? Mm-hmm. The West got motivated by that, and as soon as we lost this, we lost our bearings. And it's it's uh, there's nothing that actually breathes down our neck anymore. We got uh, we got sloppy with mm. everything. And politicians, of course, get sloppy as well. That means, you know, when a politician gets sloppy, he starts to spend money like crazy. Mm. You know, and there's lots of mechanisms that they can use uh, in in order to make more money without the population immediately feeling that. Of course, eventually Mm. the snake bites. Yeah. That made decades sometimes. Yeah. Right. And I think we are at the point where, where things start to really hurt, where they would have to own something. So they need a new big story. 
And the big scary story is something that's wonderful to just uh, 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 distract people from what's really ha happening here. It means that our entire uh, economic and financial system is rotten to the core and needs reform. Mm. You know, and nobody wants to touch this. Well, I, I think the argument is that, uh, you know, if you just look at it as a economic machine and you look at the world and how this communicates with each other and how this system seems to allow, you know, some kind of future, some kind of stability in at least making deals and keeping things mo moving. If you just look at it as that, it seems pretty powerful. It seems like it can keep going in a direction instead of, you know, some kind of 180 or a 90 degree left turn. You know, can we keep what it is that we have rolling, but can we, you know, obviously make some adjustments that are needed? Well, we're always making adjustments and, and uh, it's, it's, I need to split up now between, I, I'm sitting here in Europe and uh, we have a very different story here in Europe as than you have over there in North America. In North America, what you have right now is uh, two advantages. First, you have consistently cheap energy. That doesn't sound like much right now because energy is dirt cheap right now. So everybody t will tell you, well, big deal. What do we have now? Because I can have cheap energy. I mean, the Chinese are buying oil uh, for nothing, uh, for an apple and an egg. And uh, yeah, that's true for right now. But, you know, I, I've been walking this planet for more than half a century right now. And I know exactly that now we got it cheap. Uh, just wait for two years and then tell me again. Because the curve is going to go just flip around. I mean, does anybody really seriously think that things are going to remain as depressed as they are right now because of COVID? No, we're going to flip back. Right. We're going to come back economically. People want to consume, people want to live, and people will write off whatever they have to write off and move on. The economy will grow again, and we will actually outgrow our old uh, oil consumption records again. So 100 million barrels a day, yeah, well, there will be more. We are not at peak demand yet. Right. It is um, a temporary setback that we are having right now because of COVID and a couple of other factors. The oil price war between Russia and, 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 and OPEC actually uh, had, had quite an effect in there as well. But it doesn't matter. It's going to come back. Now, the big difference between Europe and North America is that North America has, if it wants to, all the tools to have a quick comeback because it has the cheap energy. And the second thing is that, and don't get me wrong right now, I don't want to get political, but uh, it's uh, right now uh, America is dealing with its problems, with its real problems. People only see now uh, BLM and cities burn and all those kind of things, but and they think that's a bad thing. No, America actually deals with its problems. It's not suppressing them. Right. Yeah? And everybody who deals with problems will experience pain for a certain while, but eventually they will come out on top. Mm. It's the people who suppress their problems that will stick with them for decades and then wow. worse. Because wow. that is slow rot in the society. Yeah. So whatever happens in America, whatever comes on top, yeah, it's uh, 
I'm personally, uh, I would, and, and that's a cold calculation. I would guess that Trump is going to be winning, but what do I know? It's still about 40 days to the election. But whoever wins, if it's Trump or if it's Biden, it doesn't really matter very much. Yeah. Right. Amer America has the tools, and I think America will use the tools uh, to re-regionalize business. It will attract back uh, industries, jobs. Everything that just went away for the last 30 years comes back to America, no matter who is in charge at the top. People like to, uh, for example, attribute energy independence to Trump. Uh, no, it wasn't Trump. Right. That whole thing started 20 years 20 ago. 20 years ago, that's before, right. Before Trump, before Obama, even before Bush. Yeah. yeah. Right. All right. those things. It's Nixon. never. Nixon. <laughs> yeah. Nixon, yeah. Nixon, it's, Nixon it's, started it. It's so. never. It's never Oil politicians. Money. It's never politicians who do the things. It's entrepreneurs. And the good thing with the American system is you can burn it to the ground. It will rise like Phoenix from the ashes very, Ooh. very quickly. Yeah, that's the good thing. You do the same thing in Europe. You are going to have smoldering ruins for the next twenty years. What? Because uh, Europe. So, yeah. So, in your perspective, is it because of that inability to? kind of act out or is it uh, is it Suppression. rooted in much yeah yeah deep no, I, I think that it's a secret weapon of america is its federalism yeah, because there is there's 50 americas actually yeah? Yeah. and and those 50 americas they are fundamentally different from each other and mm -hmm. you can have states fail completely you can have the dumbest governors uh, in a row completely wrecking the economy even of a major state the rest of the states Maybe I don't want to say completely unaffected by it, but they may develop just well. There's always something that's doing very well in the U.S. Wow! In Europe, possible in Europe, we have those small. Austria is a federation. I mean, you've got eight million inhabitants in the country where I'm living, and this is a federation of nine regions, like nine states. You know, mm -hmm. that's ridiculous how small they get. Yeah, but wow. the problem is we are we are a federation just in name. Our regional governors, if you want to call it that, yeah, they have very little in terms of real power. Wow. In the US, in the US it's very different. Yeah? So in, when, I, when I went to law school, uh, there was uh, in constitutional law, we had a question once uh, which went, who is more powerful inside his own country, the American president or the French president? Yeah? And everybody immediately, oh, the American president, the American president. And I thought no. for a while, I thought, no, it's the French president, because the French president can dissolve parliament. He can do things the American president can't even think no. of. The strongest, and then people don't realize that the strongest branch of government in America is the judicial system, is, is the Supreme yeah. Court, because they can it override is. both the president and the uh, legislative party. So, Wow. Uh, and in Europe, in Europe, all those things don't exist. Wow. So it's interesting that I hear, okay, from conversations that I have with people that are way older than me and come from a totally different background. A conversation that is interesting to me is the concept that America could use a lot more of this kind of socialistic, if you call it that, uh, economy or way of running the country similar to Europe. And that seems like a positive or a popular concept. Or do, do you agree with that or no? Well, you can try. America is in itself 50 different laboratories. Mm. So certain states can try out things. They can fail and the whole will be better off for it. Why? Because people 
will learn eventually. Wow. Yeah. Eventually they come back. We don't have this healing mechanism in Europe. Wow. Why? Because everything is under a thick cloak. People don't believe they can move a thing. You know, I, I've, been, I have, I've been living in New York for about uh, six months. That's a long time ago. And uh, in Houston for uh, a little while. And, and the funny thing that hit me over there was that as soon as I arrived in New York for the first time, it was in 1992. Yeah, it was, and that's not the most entrepreneurial part of the U.S. You know, that's a pretty yeah. bureaucratic part, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but still, you know, you step out of the airplane and I took a sniff. And, uh, it's, I wanted to do something. I didn't even know what I wanted to do. Just energy. You, you got to. Because it's just uh, the, the feeling of possibility. Wow. I can try. I can try. Wow. I can fail and survive it. Wow. Uh, and, and let's talk about it. It's if incredible. you fail in Europe, you remain a failure for the rest of your life. Oh, my gosh. Wow. The system is not going to let you forget it. In America, it's a badge of honor to have failed. You know, wow. I tried this here. That's my failure. Um, I put it on my chest. Yeah. I didn't stop. I failed here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like to talk about my failures here in Europe. Everybody is looking at me as if I have horns growing out of my head. Yeah. In America, I can talk about that totally freely and people actually give me credit for it because I dealt with my failures. Right. In Europe, very different. You no. failed, you failed. It's going to be, it's going to stick on you for the rest like of your scarlet life. scarlet like, letter. That's, yeah, yeah. that's, that's crazy and, to think about. And, and that's the problem that Europe has. And I, I don't think that can, can be easily fixed. I do think that uh, we need America as, as, as a beacon of, of when Europe goes down and it will go down, it will need America again. We might need a Marshall Plan again. Wow. In 20 years' time, I don't know. Right. Yeah. There might be some countries that just get it. I, 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 I work towards that here in Austria. Mm -hmm. uh, but That's you know, amazing, man. That's amazing. I, what I'm feeling and what I'm getting from this is absolutely amazing. You're speaking to just fundamental communication between how we operate as a society, as, as, a, as a society, as a species. We're at the species level right now, and it's about communication. It's about the fact that we can fail and it's fine. It, it makes us stronger. We're living proof of that as a nation of totally opposite thinking people from one office to the next. We can still operate as a country and it, you have these, uh, these, I don't know, these parameters like you call the 50 own federal little, uh, like the states are all its own federal deal. But it, it, together we are moving forward. And this goes into the drill down segment of this show for me. Me, and the fact that we have right now an opportunity to reevaluate what our feelings are towards hydrocarbon or more specifically our feelings toward a sustainable energy solution for all. This is a globe map of the world and we need 100% efficient energy for this, this thing. And that's what we're after. And we need to reevaluate what we are relying on and why we're relying on that and why we're pushing forward the way we are. As a collective mindset, the internet, the camera standing in front of me and this conversation I'm having with Rudolph in Europe and Skips is saying, hey, what is that? Is that uh, Mammoth Lakes? I don't know where you yeah, are today. Crystal Lake, Crystal Lake. <laughs> okay. That's way better than my background. <laughs> the, the, the internet is the hero of the story. It is allowing us to combine these concepts and ideas at 
at just unbelievable speed and we can make these adjustments and we can reevaluate what is needing to be reevaluated with and stop the nonsense and push forward as a collective mindset that's but it start but it starts with opening up a conversation right kind of yeah. going all the way back into that it's not this idea of hey you have a difference of opinion to me i'm going to close this door because i don't want to listen to you because we don't agree it's being able to find that middle ground between even if you disagree with them still being able to find a middle ground between two individuals. I think that is something that's amazing. I think sometimes, sometimes it's not even the middle ground. I mean, some of my best friends are eyeballs to eyeballs with me on certain issues. We really took it out. I mean, we are really dead opposed to uncertain issues. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're still some of my best friends and we, we don't even want to find middle ground because I got my opinion and he got, <laughs> whoever it is, his opinion. Yeah? yeah. And when we meet and we start to talk about it, uh, well, it's going to be loud yeah? <laughs> and, and uh, it's not going to be a very pretty sight. doesn't matter. Still my buddy. Yeah. yeah? Then we go for, you talk about it. You, you get a beer and then yeah, you, exactly. Yeah. Your best friends and, and you wake up the next day. <laughs> I, I think, I think this is the, the, the hallmark of, of civilized society to be able to disagree and keep disagreeing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just died. And, and uh, I mean, if you look at her, I agreed with very little that she actually did or said. And uh, still, uh, she was at the Supreme Court, court best friends with uh, Justice Scalia, who was at the exact opposite end of her. Yeah. And still, they went to opera together. They cultivated a, a great friendship together and everything. Why can't we all be like that? That's right. That, that should be our aim. You know, let's yeah. disagree. Okay, we disagree. Big deal. Why not? I mean, I'm sure if if we the three of us, yeah, we kept talking, we're gonna find areas of disagreement. So oh, what? Yeah. It oh, doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Yep, man. I think this is. That was a for me. That was awesome. That was awesome to to get into the subject of kind of where with your experience specifically, and we'll move into the drill down segment now. And your specific experience with going into the natural gas company into mr lng into understanding and your observations on hydrocarbon fundamental hydrocarbon theory of of this is efficient energy it could be used around the globe very easily and we have a sustainable energy foundation for the future and then all of a sudden that took a twist that took a sharp left and all of a sudden no that's not efficient anymore and no that's not safe anymore we need to change it and then you know what what is going on with this concept in your opinion rudolph i i think that um, it's and that's a difficult conversation that we're having right now it's a uh, um one of the problems and i needed to discover that now uh, you have already guessed it from my background i'm not a scientist i'm not even an engineer uh, so uh, there's lots of things that I need to learn for myself, and I'm still discovering things. Yeah? But uh, one of the first things that I needed to discover was that uh, uh, CO2 was actually actually not a pollutant. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not a scientist. You know, I didn't look into those things. Yeah? But how can something that's uh, less than a tenth uh, of a percent of uh, the atmosphere be so incredibly potent? That's not plutonium. It's CO2. It's plant food we are talking about. Yeah. How the hell can it have right. this kind of effect? Now, I couldn't really back that up with data, right? Because I'm not the kind of scientist who can do those kind of things. It was just common sense to me. And then 
I started reading. And then I started looking into what CO2 really is and, and what, uh, what the heating effect might be and what's the influx uh, of uh, uh, the sun's radiation, for example, changes in luminosity of the sun, changes in the orbit of Earth, uh, uh, changes in the way the Earth itself, uh, actually the, 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 the axis of the Earth uh, uh, trundles wobbles. around. Yeah? And uh, all those wobbles, uh, that they are producing far more significant changes than any gas in the atmosphere could ever do. And then it hit me, because then I thought, climate change. What is climate change? I'm living here in Austria. And in, in Austria, it's, uh, we have seasons. Yeah? And in, in summer, we go up to uh, about 40 degrees Celsius plus. Uh, I don't know what that is yeah. in Fahrenheit, yeah, but it's pretty hot, that's actually. Hot. That's hot. I, I, I came back from trips <laughs> in Brazzaville. That's straight on the equator. Yeah? And uh, came back to Vienna, and Vienna was hotter than Brazzaville. Uh, so it's 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 in summer it's really hot here, and in winter we regularly go down to minus ten. Mm-hmm. So we got a temperature swing, a daytime temperature swing, uh, of fifty degrees Celsius, which is pretty drastic. I mean that's climate change. So I thought, okay, and the IPCC tells me things about a half degree change. Mm. We got fifty over the seasons that's climate change and what's causing this climate change those seasons it changes in luminosity of the sun because the earth changes its position relative to the sun and that little change in position relative to the sun is capable of changing the average temperature in austria by about 50 degrees celsius that's bigger than anything any climate scientist has actually pointed out in any kind of report wow what a great observation yeah. If the sun, if only the relative positioning of the Earth axis towards the sun is capable of changing Earth's temperature by 50 degrees, I mean, then it would probably take a lot less changing, changing uh, of the sun's luminosity to produce a 1 or 2% change in temperature. Couldn't we agree on that? Because if it can do 50 degrees, I mean, 1 or 2 degrees shouldn't be a big deal at all. And, and, and when I understood this, uh, I understood that this is a big messed up story. I mean, right. there's something more behind that. And then I went further. Uh, in the meantime, I was a consultant, uh, and then I, I went into advocacy for LNG. And uh, maybe this little piece I need to put in, pull in, it's uh, one of the reasons why I quit uh, OMV in 2011 was also that uh, I got a handicapped child. My, my oldest son is autist. And, and you know, when you have a child like this, you start to think about how did it happen? Why me? Why, wow. why my child? Yeah? Wow. And one of the theories that exists is uh, air pollution. Air pollution might cause autism. Is this proven? No, absolutely not. It's just a theory. Uh, probably it's not even true. But the problem is when you're the father of an autistic, autistic child and you're in, in, in this uh, line of work already, then that's a thought that doesn't really leave you very easily. Wow. Uh, you can't just throw it away. So uh, I looked into air pollution and everything. So I went into particulate matters, into, into uh, nitrogen oxides and all those kind of things. And, and I'm actually, I'm, I became an environmentalist because I really am. I just don't think CO2 is a pollutant. That's mm-hmm. it. But all the rest, the real pollutants, I don't want in my air. I don't right. want to have poison in my water. I want to have clean air, clean water, uh, and I want to have clean soil. And I want to have beautiful landscapes, natural landscapes, without those bird killers and everything. Right. 
It's uh, so I'm I'm a true (coughs) environmentalist. The only thing that actually makes me different from uh, many of the others that you see out there is that I don't consider CO2 a pollutant. And then when you push that a little bit further, and I fell upon uh, a study, uh, I don't even remember what that was, a kind of paper, uh, and, and that started to detail the abiotic origins of methane. Because I, I had a problem. I learned all my energy life since I have joined the gas world that uh, methane is a product of um, life. So you need biology in order to produce methane. If you don't have biology, no methane. Okay, no problem. I had no qualms with that. But then I, again, here comes the homo universalis of the polymath in. Uh, I also happen to be very interested in astronomy. And uh, (laughs) I love that. And then I thought by myself, you know, most of those who look a little deeper into astronomy know a certain moon named Titan of Saturn. And I learned, okay, they got lakes of methane over there because it's cold <laughs> enough for it to liquefy naturally. Yeah? Lakes of methane, it's like uh, Saudi Arabia in space. Yeah? That's what the story was. And then I started to think, I thought, okay, well, either we got extremely hardy microbes over there that are producing the methane or or something is horribly wrong. Because where's this or it's something, or it's something that's naturally occurring in the universe. Exactly. That's, yeah. So the planets, the moons, uh, all those heavenly bodies—they are producing methane, but not as a biological process, but as a geological process. That's right. And exactly. what I think today, and I don't know, there needs to be a better scientist uh, or a scientist actually, because I'm not one uh, uh, who confirms this or disconfirms this, but. The impression that I'm getting today is that uh, if you look at uh, methane reserves on Earth, and especially when you look at methane hydrate reserves uh, on Earth, those reserves dwarf any other uh, hydrocarbon reserves by more than an order of magnitude. That means that all the oil, (laughs) all the coal, all the natural gas we have produced so far and we have found so far that's still recoverable yeah, is a smidgen compared to the methane hydrates reserves that we have right. in Earth. Yeah. Uh, not in Earth, in the seafloor, for example, on the continental shelves, which means it's inexhaustible. But this needs to come from somewhere because if you look at the map of the globe and you try to turn around, you've got the map there, there now, Methane hydrates are pretty much anywhere. Well, there are a lot of coastlines, certainly, yeah. Yeah, they are also inside the continents. If you look at, for example, Siberia, there are massive reserves of of methane hydrate out there. How the hell did they get there? Yeah, because process called serpentinization. Yeah, that's where we (laughs) have it. Now, Now, the problem is that those methane hydrates they actually gas out pretty much all the time. They are right. gassing everywhere. Yeah. Now, people can tell me now it's, it's that much or this much. Nobody can really measure it because no. if we are measuring CO2 in parts per million, we are measuring methane in parts per billion. Mm. How the hell do you measure exact changes in methane concentration from orbit in parts per billion on the planet? 
I understand that if you have a source of methane and you put uh, some measuring de device over there, you will probably get a pretty good read of that. But the globe is big. You would need thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of those stations in order to get a somewhat precise picture. It cannot be done from orbit. It cannot be done from a satellite, not something that's as incredibly thin as this. This means there's probably a lot more outgassing of methane than we think right now. Yeah. And if we have so much outgassing, that means the atmosphere has learned to deal with that. <laughs> uh, because the atmosphere itself breaks up methane as soon as it comes into the air pretty quickly into water and CO2. Uh, because otherwise it would have accumulated, we, have, we would have another Titan over here. Uh, this means methane is the most natural molecule that exists on this planet. Mm. Uh, it's, our entire planet is yeah. a methane production machine. Which, in the end, if you just push this to the end, methane is probably the only really renewable energy that we have on this planet. Well, yeah. So, it's interesting. Very, uh, there's so much interesting about this. First of hmm. all, for me, is trying to describe a geologic concept that we call the history of our planet, right? Geologic time. And for someone to fundamentally understand and really conceptualize how much time has happened and how little and short our time in, in evaluating what is actually going on with the Earth's natural process, it just it makes sense on why we are so confused on some of these fundamental processes on this planet. We have to come together collectively as a mindset. It's not one scientist. It's not a single group of scientists. This is going to take a worldwide effort to understand the scale and the process of serpentinization. And it's a major, major topic that's very confusing to the concept, like the conventional model of how this process worked. We can't forget that it wasn't until the 70s that we even said plate tectonics was actually the mechanism that allowed Africa and South America and North America to break apart, right? We didn't have the mechanism. We knew that was true, and but we didn't have a mechanism. Then tectonic plates came because of the, the Cold War and us studying the mid-Atlantic ridges to hide our subs and all that stuff. That is what developed that concept. And we said, oh, that's the mechanism. In the 70s, we had the mechanism of plate tectonics. In 2020, we understand for the first time the process of plate tectonics and not just simply a mechanism to move things apart. This is a mechanism of how the earth created the crust we live on and the atmosphere we have. It is completely integrated into the process of this planet, which is a universal process. Mars was doing, we have a show on the 29th, we're talking Mars geology, simple little plug here. It is going to be amazing to see that Mars basically became a non dynamo rock, right? It lost its liquid core. It crystallized out and it stopped. That's a 3.8-ish billion year old process that stopped. And what does it do? It allows us to send ro uh, curiosity to it to figure out what was this pro what was the planet doing at that time and the process of serpentinization and water specifically when it dehydrates and when these plate tectonic processes are crossing each other in geologic time and you allow a planet to hold water and keep that cycle going 
Woo! We got plenty of energy and we have we have straight jacketed the star that we live on and this incredible energy that we have in this planet. And we're just looking at that process now today. And it's worldwide. For the first time, we can speak in all languages. We can look at this worldwide data set and we can actually see that the gas hydrates you talk about are scale correct to the process of serpentinization. Whoa, what is that? Why is that such a striking correlation? Let's dive into that. Serpentinization is an amazing process. It's one that I've dedicated the rest of my life to in this research institute. To understand what this is actually doing based on the rocks that we can pick up and at outcrop and actually tie together, right? You, you gotta be able to predict this stuff. And that's the most fascinating part. That's where everybody is right now. I think without question, we are just uniting. The internet is bringing us together. We're, be, we're creating better ideas and it's just gonna take time. It's going to take time and it's going to take um, um, failure on the part of uh, the other, uh, let's say, um, options that cannot work. Mm. People need time. People need to see. I mean, look at Australia today. Uh, it's uh, the Morrison government is in place today because uh, the people were uh, not exactly very happy anymore with this rampant uh, um, uh, renewable energy uh, policy and uh, uh just killing everything that's fossil energy, killing the reliability in the system and everything. We see those things happening here in Europe slowly as well. They are pretty underground because people don't speak out very much. But when you look at uh, countries like Germany, uh, that is very pro-renewable energy, uh, you have political forces in Germany uh, that are already pushing for exiting uh, this renewable energy. They're not the major forces right now, but they're growing. And wow. there's a lot of discontent on the street. It's uh, part of what I'm doing today is in, in my uh, endeavor to, to, to um, uh, be an advocate for uh, methane and LNG is uh, that I'm talking with a lot of people on the street, lots of regular normal folks, people that are not beholden to politics or anything else. Yeah? And, and when you talk to them, you will find an enormous silent majority, I would say, uh, of people that just don't think anything about that. They just go with the flow until things become so painful that they flip. Uh, this is happening now. I can't tell you yeah. how long it's still going to take. It might take another 10 years here in Europe. It might uh, just break loose tomorrow. We don't know that. But one thing is for certain for me, if people start to make the right choices when they have exhausted all the bad options. And I think in Europe, we need to exhaust some more bad options. I think in America, you are much closer to this whole thing, very simply because you can try your bad options in a couple of states like California and New York, and other states don't have to follow suit. You can just watch from afar <laughs> and actually profit from this whole thing. Right. You know, because industries, for example, they're leaving California and going to Texas now. Right. Yeah. Uh, look, look at Elon Musk. I mean, <laughs> uh, he moved over to Boca Chica. Which is a very nice place actually yeah <laughs> and 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 this is this is you can do this in america how would you do that in europe mm. in europe no matter where you go uh you find yourself in, in, in more or less exactly the same crap uh, so we can't just wait until this whole thing breaks down but yeah we're an incredible interesting time because we as a as a whole it does seem like everybody has just accepted the fact meaning everybody in the sense of like private industry that's just like hey we gotta 
do whatever we're doing moving forward. It's a cleaner energy. So it, we're going to put people on treadmills to run their laptops from home or whatever. We're, we got to decrease this idea of emissions and all that stuff. It's going that way. You're not turning that train around. All we can do is, you know, keep large objects off the tracks. You need to separate the talk from the actions. I mean, there's, uh, if you look at companies, for example, there are very, very different profiles out there. If you look at BP, for example, they call themselves beyond petroleum right now, and they make a lot of wins. I mean, their projections, I personally don't even read them anymore because they're not worth my time. You know? But uh, uh, they seem to be totally on the train of, uh, yeah, let's go fully renewable, let's do this, let's do that, whatever. Uh, if you look at other companies like Shell, for example, yeah, they're doing their renewable bit as well. They, they talk to talk, but at the same time, when you look what they're actually doing, they are building uh, LNG fueling stations like crazy. They have the, they have built the largest LNG portfolio on Earth. Wow. They're not there uh, by any measure. Yeah. Now, Shell is Shell. It's a big company like every big company. Of course, they make a lot of big mistakes as well, but they do a lot of things right, and their portfolio is going to do a lot of good things to them in the future because this LNG portfolio, once uh, the world starts to flip around and say, look, we got to do something that works. We can't continue on this path anymore. Then you need quick solutions and nothing is quicker than gas. And when you already have a portfolio in place, you can act, you can shoot, you can make money back in two years uh, that uh, you have lost over 10 years. Wow. Yeah. I, I remember when, when um, BG actually uh, uh, did the uh, Equatorial Guinea pro, uh, contracts. At the time, they were seen as crazy. A price of 2.5 to 4.5 uh, dollars per MMBTU at the time when the contracts were concluded was seen as co totally nuts. You know, how can you guarantee 2.5 dollars per MMBTU when the market regularly crashes below that? Well, you know what? They made the entire investment back in, I, I hear something like one and a half, two years. Yeah, and that was a 20, I know, 16.5 years contract. Yeah. So this was a money printing machine. <laughs> that was a couple of really, really uh, strategically minded managers that have set this whole thing up. And those guys went, went lucky on that. Mm -hmm. Great contract, great project. Wow. Yeah. So sometimes you, you need to pick them apart. There are some companies that, that are not going to learn it, but other companies, they are talking to talk, they are doing the marketing measures, hydrogen, uh, wind energy and everything, but at the same time, they are working their fossil portfolio because it seems like somebody in the, in the, in the top management back there seems to realize this whole thing is not going to hold up forever. Yeah. Are we well, going to need they, something? They understand, they understand what the backbone of their company is. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not it's, true for everyone, but the, those companies out there. And, and I think this is the reason why it's very, very important to keep pushing that message, especially that message that, uh, it's it's the process of I, I actually learned the word from you, Troy, serpentinization. It's it's again I'm not a scientist, yeah, but it, it more or less meets exactly what uh, I was reading up of on of for the last eighteen months. Uh, is uh, it, it's this that Earth is actually um, an energy making machine, and the entire methane molecule is part of a, a, a circle that actually is produced by Earth, can be used on the surface. And through CO2 and through a plant life and everything goes back and, and the whole circle renews itself and water is part of this whole thing. Actually, yeah. if you look at water yeah, and methane are the two methods of binding the hydrogen molecule, which yep. is a pretty unfriendly molecule to say at least. 
Yeah, so that's why, we, that's why we use the term uh, hydrocarbon, not fossil fuel. Yeah, right. that's what exactly. it is. It's it is. Not that's a fossil what, fuel. That's Coal what it is. Is but Coal methane, certainly is. Yeah. methane, oil, fossil. Fuel. I'm I'm or, very uh, sure. hydrocarbon. <laughs> methane to me is <laughs> not a fossil scared. fuel. Uh, <laughs> oil, I don't know. I'm not good enough to make that determination. I've read a lot of things, but. Uh, I'm not good enough in order to 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 just put them in the right drawers. But methane, I'm 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 sure as I'm sitting here, this is not a fossil fuel at all. That's right. Yeah. No. The the, the whole fossil concept is is uh, fossil. It's totally itself. wrong. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, what's interesting and what's exciting for PVE, and and I know we're just uh, what, what is PVE podcast, and and what do we have to say? But you know, our understanding of the geologic process and geologic tools that we have. In modern context and modern geology, it is the most fascinating thing that's happening on the planet, in my opinion, because the fundamentals are being completely reevaluated and the the ideas that are coming from reevaluating the fundamentals with the right model, which just out with the old, just done with the model. It's a new model. When you do that, you're incredibly predictable. You're incredibly powerful when it comes to making economic decisions for your country or for your natural development, how you are gonna move forward. We need that new model. And that's what I'm so excited about being a part of. And that's what a PBE is constantly coming from that perspective that no, we got a new model, it's okay. And there's no knee jerk reactions here. There's no world's coming to an end because someone that guy gets voted in no. or that guy gets voted in. It's moving forward. This is a big old freaking train. We're on it, we're moving with it. It's just, let's start talking about it. Let's start reevaluating these things, remove emotion, logically think about it, and let's come up with new solutions. We d we're doing it right now. Let, 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 let me give you another angle on that and, and uh, on how right you actually with what you said, is that what shale, gas, and oil did to the US was that uh, making the US more or less independent from outside energy imports. Well, there are still energy imports into the U.S., but it's much less beholden the U.S. Uh, to any kind of outside, outside supplier. Huh? That changes geopolitics. Now, if, if we use uh, the process of uh, serpentinization and gas hydrates, and we learn how to econ economically exploit uh, those reserves as they are anywhere on Earth, uh, the concept of shipping energy all over the globe is pretty much mute. Wow. Because if I'm, for example, and let's take uh, one of the resource poorest countries that exists out there is Japan. Japan needs a lot of energy, but they don't have a lot of energy natively. That's why they put uh, most money into uh, methane hybrid research together with the Chinese, together with uh, the Taiwanese, together with uh, the Indians. Why? Huge energy import. All of them extremely dependent on energy imports. Yeah, so they want to crack this whole uh, economic uh, uh, Pandora's box open and see uh, if they can use it yeah? uh, economically. And, and to my mind, if, if they keep doing that one day, they will succeed. I have no doubt about that. It might take I don't know one year, ten years. Right. I have no idea. But I remember very well when I looked the first time into shale, when I presented this to my company. I will was already working in energy at the time. Uh, I, I presented this uh, to my superior manager and he looked at me as if I was an alien. He told me, what, what, what are you talking about? What is this, sh shale? Uh, never heard of that. Yeah, get the hell out of my office. Yeah? <laughs> and and it, it's the whole, the whole um, uh, uh, dynamic uh, changed within less than two years. Everybody knew about that. That was the, the new exciting thing on the block. Shale has been done 
for decades before that moment. Oh yeah, people have been fracking for decades. Halliburton, uh, we we had frackers over here in Austria. They have been fracking here in the seventies and the eighties. Yeah, that is about yeah. as long ago as I'm old now. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the methods have definitely improved, but oh, yeah, absolutely. Been frack- the fracking has definitely been people. People have that misconception. It's been around for a very very long time. A very very long time. First. First fracking, I was told that first fracking actually happened because uh, uh, they were drilling for water in California. Mm-hmm. That was the original uh, fracking technology. That's why what they used it for. And, and then later wow. people actually found out that you can use it for gas and for oil. But it, just to push that a little bit further, shale has changed geopolitics already now, and it will further change it. Now, if you just take away the concept that you can make a nation like Japan, a nation like China, a nation like India, yeah, uh, independent from outside imports. That means they cannot be, uh, let's say, blackmailed anymore. That changes politics a lot. Look at Israel today. Israel was always dependent on outside energy imports until they discovered those gas fields in the Mediterranean. Mm. Now suddenly they got so much gas, they're selling it to the Egyptians. Wow. And that improves relations. Yeah. yeah. And now uh, they could even, I mean, I suggested once, for example, Israel is a small nation, use your gas, liquefy it, and use it as fuel for your trucks. You, do, you wouldn't need a lot of fueling stations considering the size of the country. Yeah. yeah. And there's not a horrible lot of cross-border traffic anyway, so... Uh, that wouldn't be a big deal. And actually, it would make you completely independent. You wouldn't have to import oil anymore. Just imagine that. For a yeah. country like Israel, that's so bedraggled from all sides. Uh, that is a huge deal. And that could happen for virtually anybody else as well. That changes things like, for example, uh, the resource curse. Look at countries like, for example, Saudi Arabia, like Russia, countries that actually finance their almost the entire GDP through energy sales or mineral sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they don't have this outlet anymore, they would probably have to think of how to make money by other means, which means if you can't sell uh, what you rip out of your soil anymore, probably you better put some trust into your entrepreneurial class. But the entrepreneurial class, they will want to have a little bit more political freedoms in order to do what they need to do in order to keep the state financed. So those countries might face a moment where they say, okay, uh, let's reform our own states. Let's be a little nicer to our own citizens in order to soldier on or let's go bankrupt. Mm. So the world is going to change. This whole process of being able to produce energy within your own borders uh, because it is virtually anywhere on earth changes the entire geopolitical game Mm. of earth. And I do think that um, it's also, it will also change uh, uh, a couple of aspects that we have today. Like if you just think back a couple of years ago, uh, people looked at the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, and China, and then they added South Africa to the whole thing as a, uh, political correct correctness measure to have an African country in this. And they thought they were the economic superstars. They thought our own systems are broken to the core. 
And uh, those countries, they're doing something right because they're growing so much. Well, you know, you can grow uh, very much if, you, uh, if, if resource prices, energy prices or mineral prices are very high on the world market and everybody's throwing loads of money at you because you're selling this stuff. It's easy to grow. It's easy to look fabulous. Yeah. Take this away and then we see the real value of the economic systems. Mm. A, country, a country shows its true value when you take all the resources away and just leave it to the entrepreneurial spirits of its people. The best people example is Hong Kong. Hong Kong was a rock in the sea, zero natural resources, even fresh water was a problem there. And the only thing they had by space over there was malaria. Yeah. And it turned, it turned to be the most prosperous part of uh, the entire East Asian uh, um, yeah. region of the world. Yeah. Until China actually became so prosperous. Uh, but yeah. for, for decades, everybody looked at Hong Kong. How the hell did they do that? I mean, certainly the UK didn't subsidize it. Wow. The UK was busy with itself. <laughs> right. So it, trusting your entrepreneurs can push you to the highest heights. Wow. I have once made a comparison like uh, imagine one country, it's landlocked, no access to the sea, agriculture is different, difficult there. They have uh, virtually no real good minerals to exploit and everything. That would be Switzerland, one of the richest countries uh, for capital. <laughs> and then take another country that has virtually any mineral that you can imagine in spades. The climate is great there. Agriculture would just be outstanding. That's the Congo. Wow. One of the poorest countries on earth, which proves mineral wealth doesn't really make you rich your people make you rich. That's the best resource that yeah, you have. Wow. So wow. having energy everywhere, being able to produce methane on any country, on any part of the globe, because geological pro process of serpentinization just puts it anywhere. If we develop that kind of technology, we take the resource curse out. I think it would uh, make the world a better place over the long term. No question about it. No question about it. Doesn't happen everywhere. You got to have good geologic uh, tools, yeah. put to work and find it and find it, you know, most economically viable. That whole process still totally exists, but the the target area is now the planet. It is Energy flows, energy flows won't go away, that's for certain. But if yeah. you just looked 20 years ago, uh, Russia uh, was looking at uh, a field called Stockman. They wanted to develop that. It's a huge gas field in the Barents Sea. Yeah. Absolutely gargantuan. And absolutely world-class. Just very hard to develop. You know, very far out there in the Barents Sea. The Barents Sea is uh, well, like, you know, you look at the Chukchi Sea or the, the, the Beaufort, uh, something like, if, if you look something, at something comparable in the, around the North America. Yeah. It's a very tough sea out there. You've got icebergs the size of Switzerland. Wow. that just float. And the water is about 600 meters deep over there. That is already uh, reasonably deep. So this development would be very expensive. It's a deep sea development and it's in the Arctic region under very difficult circumstances. That would be an expensive development. But as this is a world-class reserve, people were looking into, Gazprom was looking into developing that. At the time when they did so, shale gas was still considered to cost $25. Nobody knew for certain. Yeah. 20 to $25 uh, per MMBTU to develop in continental in the, in the lower 48. Yeah? 
Now, if you look 20 years later, shale gas can be lifted at two to three dollars per gram in BTU. Uh, that is far away from any kind of capex uh, needs that Stockman would have. Stockman has been shelved by Gazprom indefinitely now. Why? Because it can't compete with shale anymore. And this is conventional gas. It's not mm. shale gas. A conventional gas field. It just happens to be in a very, very difficult region of the world. Right. So that was one of the big hopes of future European energy supply at the time, and it has just completely gone away. And, and that, mm. and we have a couple of other things as well. If you look at Russian gas, if you look at Yamal, for example, ten years ago when you looked at Yamal, all the reports that you got from Yamal was it was a total nightmare. Very expensive development. Yeah? Then suddenly, just about five, six years ago, all those reports disappeared. And Yamal is a friendly place. What that happened? <laughs> Nobody knows. I can tell you what happened. Is, uh, <laughs> R- Russia sunk a uh, two-digit billion dollars uh, in, into, Yamal, into the Yamal development, and it needs to replace their aging fields. And uh, they can't let the world know that they're actually spending their, uh, their trousers there. Wow. So uh, they can talk about the expensive Yamal, hoping that prices will come back one day. Yeah. But the problem is that if you have shale, gas, and oil, uh, putting a lid on prices, how the hell will you ever make money back from such projects? So shale is already killing conventional gas and oil projects right now. Very it's doing that right now. And it's mm-hmm. going to get worse for them. Now imagine a country like Japan cracking the economic um, box of methane hybrids. Just imagine they can do it on a, let's say, slightly more expensive than what they're importing the gas for right now. It would still be worth it for them because it's their resource, gives them a lot of safety. So the Japanese are willing to pay uh, vanilla prices for, for good energy. They have no problem with that. They will pay over their parts. Now, once you start that cycle, it's going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper in time. You're going to start out maybe at $15 per MPTU. It's going to come down to 10. It's going to come down to 8 to 7 because people are entrepreneurial. We're still finding things. Diesel engine is an engine that is now 100 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. there were three-digit billion dollars went into tinkering with the diesel engine in order to optimize it. And we are still not at the end. We still find things to make it fundamentally better. That shows you how deep the rabbit hole is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we naturally kind of got into the completion part of this show. So if good, good, man, I, I'm in disbelief about just your, the wealth of knowledge you have about the energy policies of all these different countries, because for Troy and myself, we're just geologists. We are, we're good at finding the oil, getting oil out of the ground. That's what, that's what we were doing for the last five years, but actually understanding kind of the, the more upstream process of like where that energy is actually being used. I mean, Oh, it's been lights out. I'm, I just feel like a fly on the wall. I've learned so much from just like sitting here. <laughs> Thank you. Now, it's a, I think when it comes to geology, it's uh, that, that's my weak point probably. But uh, it's uh, my uh, younger son. He wants to become a geologist. He's ten. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's got his rock collection. And, Come on. Uh, uh, I need to go to the mountains with him, and uh, it's uh, 
we're looking at the rocks and he's asking me things and I need actually to look up things because uh, I'm not a geologist. It's, oh, uh, I know I know probably a little more than the normal average person that you would need to read, <laughs> but that's about it. That's razor thin, you know. Yeah, Two yeah. things all you need. You need access to Mendat. That's called Mendat. Use that resource online. It's absolutely incredible what they've done okay. and collected from around the world. Mendat. And the other thing is allow your son to understand the concept of classification of rocks. When you classify rocks strategically, like sulfates and hydrate, blah, 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 hydroxides, blah, blah, you, you, you classify it all. You just, it's amazing. It's amazing how it all fits. I was, when I was a little boy, we have a museum of natural history over here. And for uh, a small country that we are, we have a pretty big one. Nice. And so it's uh, in a nice big building. And they have a massive mineral section in there. Wow. Really massive. And as kids, yeah, you look at the pretty stones, you know, usually yeah. if you're not overly interested in it, because we were on our way to the dinosaur skeletons. Yeah, that was oh. the thing they captured us the most but uh, the mineral section we looked at diamonds and at the big salt crystals because you got uh, two three meter high salt crystals in there and things like this uh, they, those are impressive yeah but i mean the collection is so incredibly massive it overwhelms you yeah? wow. and now since my my son is very interested in those kind of rocks we had already been in there i usually go in there with him and uh, then he usually has his books with him and uh, takes a specific part of the collection looks at them and everything and i go down for a coffee because he's <laughs> gonna take time out there that's awesome and and uh and he wants with me he wants to go to the mountains with me and uh told me we're gonna find some rocks uh, we're gonna find wow. some 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 minerals amethysts and things like this you know he wants mm -hmm. to find all those things and so look i love the mountains i love hiking i love learning new stuff so uh, i'm all in and wow. my son is interested in something else and playing computer games yeah man yeah, that's huge is, that's great that's important yeah yeah which is great to me and and i've always been a bit on the nerdy side so my son is naturally on the nerdy side as well <laughs> that doesn't bother me very much man that's <laughs> freaking awesome yeah there's nothing wrong with that i was gonna say i mean we're both geologists so you're kind of preaching to the choir here <laughs> it's <laughs> i can only I pray yeah. yeah it's it's uh if this is his cup of tea I'm going to make it. We have a great uh, university here. It's called the Montagne University. Uh, they have world, they are world famous mm. for, for, for geology here. And uh, they're pretty hard to get into. But uh, if uh, he stays interested um, until he has uh, finished high school, I'm going to make that possible for him because I know wow. some professors there. Wow. Oh, wow. That's amazing, man. It's amazing. What's what's cool about the classification ultimately is you're putting these stones back into the process. Process that makes rocks and the process that allows us to go what happened before, what happened after, and you're putting that story together. You're reading this amazing story in the rocks. It never ends. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's yeah. it's just no, amazing. it's, it's yeah. It the way, yeah, the, yeah, the way we would we frame it up is you're a, geologists are historians for the earth. That's all we are. And we're using the different the different rocks and the different mountains and these different faults. And we're just putting everything back together and we're telling a story. That's that's yeah. all we really do. And, and then we also and then we also use it to make predictions to find, you know, resources. But <laughs> which is actually amazing to me, because I, I remember once I, I met some upstream guys. Uh, oil drillers uh, mm -hmm. from OMV. We had a pretty sizable oil drilling department and, yeah. and they were reading seismic maps. 
And I saw those okay. huge maps spread over huge tables and everything. And they were banter with those maps and looked at them and they were reading things out of that. I thought, how the hell do you see anything yeah. here? <laughs> uh, uh, to me, it looks like chicken scratch, you know? It's, yeah. uh, <laughs> those guys were able to read those things. Oh, that yeah. Was totally, oh yeah. I, I felt like, you know, it's like, uh, it, it, to me, it was worse than Chinese. I would just <laughs> saw... didn't even see structure. <laughs> you saw the language of the earth. You were vis you were yeah. looking yeah. at the, yeah. la the language of the earth, which is it where is we can very, very impressive. Actually, mm -hmm. it's uh, it's uh, I can only say this. It's it's uh, I can see when I see an ultrasound image of, of, of from a doctor from my belly. I, I'm not a doctor in anything, but I can at least make sense of what's happening there, even if I don't see the full picture. Yeah, but I, yeah. there's at least an idea of what's happening here. Yeah. But when I look at those seismic images, there's no idea at all. It's, wow. it's, it's, it's looking like the snow yeah. display of the, on, on, on the television. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, well. When you're first looking at them, and I'll I'll even admit this: the first time I ever looked at seismic data, it was it was overwhelming because there's just so much, and you're like, what am I even supposed to be looking at? But the more and more you you start to look at it, the more and more little things start to see. Then you start to see patterns and trends in the rocks, and like. Like I said, it's it's all it is is it's Snell's law applied to the Earth, right? It's as sound waves propagate through the Earth, you know, you're getting a different contrast as that sound wave goes from one rock to the next, and that's where you get those layers defined. And then when you see breaks in the layers, you're like, all right, there's probably some sort of fault there, right? So now the red line is on top of the blue line. I'm assuming something massive must have happened here, <laughs> and then you can start putting pieces back together. I think that gets us uh, gets us into the into the completion segment very yeah. simply because uh, when one thing that I remember with the oil drillers is that and that's probably uh, one of the best things that happens in the U.S. with the shale drillers right now is uh, is is industrialization of drilling because if you look and in the the entire rest of the world drilling is a casino activity. They're going there, they're drilling their things and everything, then they're evaluating the data and then they're doing their next holes and everything. But every time, it's more or less a lucky shot. Not really, but in a sense, you know. But yeah. there is no, there is no uh, massive uh, learning curve here because they always do the same process all over again. Whereas yeah. in the U.S., when you look at those uh, uh, industrial drills that you have in a row, plus those industrial fracks, uh, they're gathering data at a scale that nobody has ever seen before. I have, oh, it's insane! I, I have it's, to, I've it's... been told that you have they have they are filling terabyte-sized uh, hard drives with one single drill. Oh yeah! If, if, not, if not, if not more, yeah. It's yeah. The, How the do you even of... evaluate this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the crazy thing is because there is so much data it's the process of going through that data and understanding what's important and what is not to the success of that well that's kind of one of the biggest challenges that troy and i were dealing with was hey what can we take away from this like you said these terabytes of data right rop uh okay. you know just like yeah gamma all this other stuff that they're running while they're drilling this well not even including the frack and you're like okay what what is usable here and like, what can we take away? So when we move on to the next project, we can focus on X, Y, or Z and either reduce risk or increase the drilling efficiency, whatever it is. But I, yeah, it's, I, it's, I think, amazing. I think that's the holy grail for, for the next at least 20, 30 years for drilling. 
And I think uh, the, the only place where this really happens in the U.S. is the U.S. right wow. now. Because if you look at the U.S., if you look at the drilling, uh, the U.S. looks like a needle pin. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it has been yeah. drilled tens of thousands or even, I don't know, maybe even hundreds of thousands of times. Oh, there's so many holes. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many holes in, in the soil of the U.S. Yeah, that you can run major simulation. And the data is, is publicly available, some of it. Yeah? Sure. Uh, that, that allows yeah. people to think of it, to play with it. You know, it's like a little bit startup culture. Yeah? Lots of it is bullshit, but some people do some really interesting stuff. You can't do that in any other country. Mm. You don't even get the data. Try that here in Europe. Mm. You get the regulation makes you mad already before you started thinking about what you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Sheesh, that's interesting. This to bring it full circle for me, that's very interesting comment. So I, I think this is the holy grail in drilling, and uh, we're not done with drilling for a long time. Even methane hydrates will need drilling, because right. how the hell will you access those resources otherwise? Exactly. So this is this is going to get uh, way more sophisticated. I think Schlumberger has uh, made a very bad deal when they got out of fracking. Mm. They should have stayed in. That wasn't a good thing because this is going to come back. Yeah, right now they're on the floor and they're bleeding and everything. Wait five years. Yeah. Wait, wait. They're going to fly up so quick you won't even see them. Amazing. Exactly. Well, Skips, you got anything before we do the recording of the intro and call this a show? Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. <laughs> I think we ended on a solid note. And Great. yeah, that was awesome. I was awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm never good. I could go on for at least 23 hours. <laughs> <though. laughs> Man, Rudolph, this was awesome. I could talk to you daily, I think. I'd just be inspired. Uh, skips, I mean, is this it? Is Are we running it? I'm really stoked. This was it was an honor, Rudolph. Thank you for uh, thank you for being on LinkedIn. Thank you for being on LinkedIn. And, yeah. Thank you. I won't, I won't disappear. I just took my summer break. I'm, I'm fresh up. Somebody told me that since I'm back from my summer break, I'm on fire. So it's... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> right Keep on. it going. Keep That's it going. Right. Oh, That's absolutely. Right. It's, 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 it's too much fun to let it go. Yeah. <laughs> right on. All right, Skips, All right. what do we say? And we're out. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Rudolph. Take care, yeah. sir. Stay in touch. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Ciao.